a long conversation ahead of us about using business to do good in the world, and that includes how companies promote inclusion and seek out diverse talents from diverse backgrounds. But before we get into any of that, I wonder what your experience has been as a female who rose to, frankly, senior career positions from a fairly young age. Like you've been a successful person for a pretty long time. What is the state of female leadership in 2021 America? And as you've experienced, has it changed a lot in the last 10 or 15 years? Such a good question. Yeah, I think I think it has. I mean, I think for myself uh, personally, I can say that my eyes have definitely been open just in the past few years to not only the kind of atmosphere that you know I have to exist in as a female and the barriers that that exist, which are are definitely real, but also to the way that. I contribute to the patriarchy. And I think it's one of the interesting things that, you know, as a, as a woman or, you know, and I think this goes across, across the board that we don't recognize the system that, that we are in, um, you know, until it's like, there's really a light shown on it. And so for myself, one of the things I've reflected on a lot in the past few years is that to be totally honest, one of the reasons I've been successful is because I have an ability to show up in a way that, you know, that works with um, the male dominated, um, you know, kind of standard corporate culture. And that is I, I don't have a problem using my voice. I typically have, you know, strong opinions and I'm able to, to kind of stand up for them and, and assert them. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it is, some of that is my personality, but a lot of it is learned. And I've recognized that over my career, I have learned that the way that I have to show up to be successful is both sort of knowing my place as a woman sometimes. And that, and that's a real thing. I mean, there's times where I recognize that there is a, um, there is a a culture happening in a meeting where um, I am going to, to need to defer and have a softer style in order to sort of uh, negotiate and get my, you know, kind of get my 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 point in because perhaps um, my uh, my voice as a um, you know a still younger I think I can still go with that a still younger <laughs> female um, you know isn't automatically being respected and so I sort of need to like put these bids out for you know, I, I hear what you're saying and I really appreciate that, but, and, and sort of negotiate my way into a conversation. But then there's other times where I recognize that actually having a really dominant um, kind of style is going to serve me well. And that's what's going to allow people to, to hear me and kind of cut through the noise and go, oh, this is somebody I should listen to. And so it's this constant, I mean, as a woman, I think it is a constant process of evaluating which of those two things do I need in this moment in order to to be the most successful. And so it's this kind of constant under the surface uh, process that you go through. Like, do I need my more female leadership style or do I need my more male leadership style? And in a lot of ways, I think that's what has helped me to be successful over time. But frankly, I had no idea that that was what was happening really until the past couple of years. It's almost like an entirely different skill that you have to develop, which is to intuit which I don't want to say persona because you're not projecting two different personas, but you're talking about almost having two different settings that you can that you can turn on or off depending on the audience. And it's almost like you have to develop a whole other skill of intuiting what that is. It's like there's it's like we're asking women to and and other 
you know, marginalized um, people in the workforce to not only have to function in those ways, but to be able to discern the difference between them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it, you know, it's, it is in a lot of, in a lot of ways, that is that kind of like double time that, that, you know, that workload that you hear people talk about, whether it is because you are, you know, a a person from, uh, you know, like a person with a disability or a person from a racial minority or, you know, or just a woman that um, you're constantly having to evaluate the situation and go, you know, which, which, which sort of, part of myself do I need to be in this setting in order to, um, you know, to be the most successful. Uh, and it can be really exhausting. And I think that's something that I, I just hadn't really realized until the, the last several years when there's really been much more of an awakening to the nature of corporate culture that really the things that we just assume are professional in a lot of ways are really about white male culture. And it's not white male culture like like just all the white guys out there do this thing. It is the culture that has has allowed, you know, white white men and certain white men of privilege to really succeed. And we're all part of that culture. So when I say like white male dominated culture, again, I know I play into that. I can absolutely play into that by, you know, again, just kind of utilizing those parts of my personality. And so it's like this recognition that until we started talking about this culture, like you don't see the water you're swimming in, right? Until you recognize like, oh God, this is right in front of me. I didn't even realize. And and that's been a big awakening for me. And I think you know, growing up in the generation where, well, I was born, uh, I was born in the early '80s, and uh, I think it was a time period where, um, you know, certainly my parents were like, "You can be anyone you want to be. You know, you could, you could be the president, you could be a doctor, you can be a lawyer," and and I really think I be- believed that. But you know, I had this moment um, back last year when uh, finally we got the results of uh, the election and learned that. We had a, a female vice president um, that I just, I went on a bike ride and I was like processing these emotions that I was having and I was so excited and happy and uh, realized that I hadn't until that moment really processed the fact that we were going to have a woman in the White House and that this had never happened before. This has never happened before. And so here I am, you know, a person that's grown up all my life with people saying, oh, you can be anything you want to be. But the reality is when you look at those positions, when you look at the White House, when you look at, you know, Fortune 100 CEOs, they're not, they're not women. They never have been, you know, they're, and so that idea that, oh, you can be anything you want to be, except for those top positions, you know, those, those are still reserved for men. And, and it was just, it's this weird, uh, unnamed um, dynamic that I think a lot of women that, um, you know, millennials that have grown up in this space where we like, we're getting these two messages at the same time. One is you can do anything you want to do. And the other is like, no, but not, not that, you know, because you're going to, you're going to be a mom and you're going to be a wife and, and that'll take all your time. And so don't worry about those, you know, those positions you can, you know, you can be almost anything you want to be. It's tricky to parse out in intentional uh, acts versus just systemic inertia almost. And I wonder, are most of these issues related to some egregious overt action or is it more of this kind of subtle, insidious, systemic stuff that keeps these problems persisting? That was a lot of alliteration for one sentence, but I think you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> I'm with you. Um, yeah, no, it, it's definitely systemic. I mean, look, I think the, the sad truth is that most women have had egregious 
you know, offenses and, um, you know, and that, that can obviously go as far as sexual assault, but it can be also things that just jar you, you know, everything from people shouting at you walking down the street to in the workplace, you know, I've, I've had people say really inappropriate things to me, not my coworkers, but in a place of work, you know, oh, hey, sweetheart. And, you know, things that are, things that are you know, somewhere in between, really offensive, um, you know, really offensive, but not uh, egregious, not, you know, not physical. But I will say that the vast majority of these things are the, the things that just go unnoticed, even, even by, even by the people that are receiving them. And, you know, they talk about microaggressions and, you know, those, in a lot of ways, those microaggressions like really aren't so micro because the things that really are micro, we don't even see. And we just, it's like, we just accept this is just the world that we live in. And again, it goes back to that, you know, like it, it's cliche, but you don't, you know, you don't see the water that you're swimming in. And that's, that's the truth of it is that the vast majority of this stuff is not even perpetrated by an individual person, you know, and that this comes back to, you know, I think this can be said for any of the isms, whether it's sexism, whether it's racism, you know, whatever those things are that are showing up are the vast majority are not coming from a place of hate. They're not coming from a place of, um, you know, oh, I don't, I don't like women. I, that's a very, it's a very, very rare stance to have, right? It is, um, the vast majority is coming from good people that are just part of a system that has been set up this way and we don't even see it. And, you know, it's, it's really not our fault that we're part of this system, but what we just have to start recognizing is like kind of continually starting to see those implicit biases that we have that, you know, whether it is that, you know, I, I mean, I, 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 I ask myself this all the time when I'm sitting in a room of people, am I, do I have a bias right now about who's in charge before I'm, you know, before these people are introduced to me? And I never used to ask myself that question. You know, you just make an assumption because you were right 90% of the time that it was the older white man that was in charge, right? That's just what it was. And, and, and so even for, for me as a person that's really focused on these issues in my career, I still have to continually ask myself that question. And so if I'm part of the system, we're all, we all are, you know, even people that are dedicating their life to this work have to still try to open their eyes. So yeah, it's systemic for sure. I had an awakening, uh, like a lot of, like a lot of white men, I had an awakening during and, and post the kind of Me Too movement of the past few years of how many times I have probably been unwittingly or unintentionally part of the problem, right? I um, consider myself a feminist. I consider, my, you know, I was raised by a single mom. I very, I, I married a really strong, independent woman. Like I, I very much believe in doing all of the right things. And I can look back on specific moments in my career, and I'm sure there are a hundred others that I have completely forgotten about or that never registered at all, where I know I was either in the wrong or I looked the other way and didn't say anything um, if something, even a small thing, was, was, was being done and, and maybe I should have spoken up. And it's just really been such an eye-opening experience. And part of me thinks this is really what we have to get to, right? It's not just the big egregious Harvey Weinsteins of the world, right? It's a lot of the time, it is, you're talking about systemic issues. It's the people who think they're doing the right thing or who want to do the right thing, but are maybe just so locked in this identity they have for themselves of being the good person that they're not even open to the possibility that they might be contributing to some of this systemic trouble. 
Absolutely. I mean, that that's absolutely the truth. And again, I think that is true no matter who you are. That's not just something that white men need to face. That's something absolutely all of us need to face. And, you know, and I think even people that are from marginalized populations are, are also having to break down, you know, maybe not quite the same, but, but, but still part of like the same structures in that, that we have in our, in our brains. I mean, they're really like the stuff's hardwired. It truly is. And so once I think we recognize that and understand that our brains were, you know, our brains evolved for a world that we don't live in any longer. And so it's not really our fault that like this stuff exists, right? That I look at this table, you know, of, of professionals in a room and assume that the older man is in charge, right? Like that there is a reason why that exists in my brain. It's because it makes it easier for us to process things. And, you know, it was easier to tell the difference from, you know, your tribe and another tribe and, you know, to know when, uh, you know, when you needed to protect yourself and all those things. And there was totally valid reasons for uh, why our brain does this kind of, you know, categorization or why we go along with social cues, you know, you're talking about when you haven't, you know, you didn't speak up, right? There are reasons why that is the natural, uh, the natural human thing to do. And, it, and they all evolved from a place of protecting us and helping us to get by in the world. But we don't live in that world anymore. We don't have lions chasing us. We don't have, you know, for the most part, tribal wars going on. And we have to be able to kind of break out of, of those confines. And I guess the point is we, I just think we can all, um, we can all live in such a space of guilt that it uh, causes, it really causes shame. And when you feel shameful, you don't want to face it. You don't want to look at this stuff. And, and we, I think as just a, a society need to move past that and say, this isn't about me being a bad person. This is just about us all, you know, trying to evolve so that we can, uh, we can work pro appropriately in this new environment that we're in. And it does, we don't need to categorize people the same way that we did. We don't need to, you know, go along with those kind of microaggressions anymore. Um, and we can make that choice, but it doesn't make us bad people. Well, we're going to talk about all of this and more as it relates to, to business and using business for good. But as we dive into this, I don't necessarily want to take for granted that every listener understands the distinctions between different types of corporations, because that's actually going to be relevant to our conversation. So um, would you break down for us what it means to be a certified B corporation as opposed to an S corporation or something else? Absolutely. So certified B corps are companies that are using their business as a force for good in one way or another. So their purpose is not just to create profits. So it's not just about money. It's really about doing something good for the world. And that might be innate to the business. It might be that company that is, uh, you know, Tom's Shoes is one that people think about as that kind of buy one, give one model, right? So that's built into the company. They're all about giving shoes to people that need them. And, and so you, you know, they, I think they've evolved their model, but it's a simplistic way to think about it, right? You pay for some shoes, someone else that needs shoes gets them. So some be B Corps are like that. And then some B Corps are companies that are simply, you know, we have a, a company called Cascade Engineering that makes plastic parts for um, automobiles for the most part and, and for other things. But, you know, they're in an industry that had nothing to do with doing good for the world. You know, it's just stuff people need to make the world go around. But they said, you know, we, we want to take care of our employees. We want to think about the environment and make sure that we're leaving the world better than, than we found it. And just kind of looking at what is 
the, the things that we can do at every step of the way that make this company create more good than, than just dollars in somebody's pocket. So that's what B Corps are all about. That's the, that's the ethos. So there's 4,000 B Corps now around the world. We just crossed the 4,000 line. So it uh, feels like a big moment. Um, it's a global movement. So they're all over the world, but these are all companies that are actually certified as doing those good things. So they're not just talking about it. It's not something they just say on their package. There's actually a nonprofit that's B-Lab, uh, the organization that I work for, that actually goes through and verifies their impact. So they, they take this really robust assessment and it shows all the different ways that they create positive impact for their workers, through their governance structures, uh, through their community engagements and through their environmental footprint and it actually then gives them a score. And so then B-Lab actually verifies that that score is in fact truly representing their impact. And then the other really important point, and this is where it can get really uh, you know, geeky and wonky, but um, that they actually change their corporate structure to make it so that they legally have the ability to do more than just create profit. And this is the thing that most people don't know. So like this whole idea about business using, you know, using business as a force for good rather, uh, I think most people have heard of in some way, shape or form, right? They bought Ben and Jerry's ice cream and they've seen, you know, the causes that they stand for. They have a Patagonia jacket and they know they're about cleaning up the environment. But what most of those folks don't know are that all of these companies also have made a legal change because the corporate structure in the US in most parts of the world actually requires companies to put profits first. And it's sort of mind boggling like that, that, you know, you always, so the government is telling me that I have to make money and that's my sole responsibility. And, and yeah, that's essentially true. And, you know, it's, it goes, goes way back to some kind of archaic protections uh, that investors advocated for because they said, Hey, if I'm going to give you money, I want to know that you're going to, you know, you're, you're going to do good by me. You're, you're not going to go and spend all my money and, you know, just disappear. Okay. So yes, in order for people to invest, they need to have some protections, but what has happened is that's gone so far that it's actually said, not only do we need to protect folks, but that's actually all companies need to do is make money. They shouldn't do anything else. They're not actually allowed to do anything else. And if you you know, when sort of push came to shove, if you actually took a company to court and said, hey, I think you ought to be making me more money. And instead you are paying your workers more, or instead you're doing more to protect the environment, or you're giving more back to your local community, you'd win because in a court of law, companies actually would be required to maximize profit. And so that means that all these other things, you know, that we as consumers, we want to know that companies are, you know, not polluting the world. And as employees, we want to know that a company is going to get good health insurance for us. All of those things, like literally none of them matter when, when you're actually looking at the legal statutes. So this is why this wonky thing about how you incorporate as a company becomes incredibly important to us just as humans, as consumers, as, you know, as employees. And so what a, a certified B Corp does is they not only verify their impact so they are having a positive impact they actually make a legal change so then they're not only allowed to do good for the world but they're actually legally required to balance the interests of not only their pocketbook but also their other what we refer to as stakeholders which just means people the planet so it's essentially it's like a triple bottom line company this that is a super helpful definition and it's a great jumping off point for the rest of this conversation 
But first, let me circle back and introduce you real quick, because otherwise we're going to get into this and you're just going to be anonymous for the rest of the day. Um, I want to make sure, though, and introduce you. In her seven plus years working with B-Lab US and Canada, Kara Peck has overseen business development, community development, strategy, and partnerships, which is telling sense, as you just heard her laying out, B-Lab's mission is built around the idea that the power of business should be used for good. Uh, globally, there are more than 4,000 certified B corporations in 77 countries, each of which opens itself up to be tracked and evaluated on things like environmental performance, public transparency, and legal and social accountability. The idea, in a big picture sense, is to redefine success as a more comprehensive metric that includes not just bottom line profit, but also the level of positive impact the company has on employees, communities, and the environment. All of which, Karapak, is kind of what you were just saying, um, and it sounds great. Help me understand what this looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, can you give me an example of a company that you've worked with and what specific changes they put in place? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the great things about B Corps is that really, you know, you look across those 4,000 companies and you're going to see all kinds of examples of the different ways that they are doing good for the world. So, you know, that goes from a company like uh, Allbirds, one of my favorite tennis shoe companies, um, doing some really cool stuff around actually tracking the carbon footprint of their tennis shoes. They want to be able to be so transparent that you can actually see the carbon footprint uh, of your shoes. And this is something that the company has really had to, to innovate. I mean, this, this type of transparency is incredibly rare. Yeah, and, and is it, it seems like that would be expensive even to track. I mean, there's a real economic commitment that goes into doing this, right? I mean, when you yeah. say we want to track the carbon footprint of every pair of shoes that we sell, where do you even begin with something like that? Yeah, I mean, gosh, I it is, I think across the board that it does require an investment. You know, it is, it is difficult to be the innovator, right? It's, this is like, it's always going to require more work and you're going to be the company that's out running out ahead and trying to figure this stuff out. But I think that the, the investment pays off a few fold. I mean, first, obviously in the case of somebody like an Allbirds, they're really targeting a conscious consumer, the kind of person that wants to know this. That's like, hey, I'll pay an extra, you know, 20 bucks for a pair of tennis shoes if I know that that this is the best, you know, not only the best pair of tennis shoes for running that are the most comfortable, but they're also going to be the lowest carbon footprint tennis shoes. Yeah, I'll, I'll pay 20 bucks for that because I, I want to know where my dollars are going. And you are seeing that. I mean, consumers are, and, and this is really every time they do these studies, you're seeing these numbers go up and up in terms of the, the consumers that are willing to pay more for products that are good for the world. So I think that's happening across the board. I mean, other examples, um, another company that I really love um, is called Beauty Counter, and they're doing such an incredible job advocating for clean beauty standards. It's really appalling. It's not my space, so I can't break it all down for you, but it is really appalling, uh, the lack of, of standards that, um, that are uh, regulating what we, what, you know, women primarily are putting on, um, on their face, on their skin. And so this company, Beauty Counter, not only are they creating incredible products and they, they really are like just the like really high quality, good products, but they have actually created a 
network of their um, their consultants that are the ones that you know sell their products across the country that are advocating for uh, changes to these regulations across the country. And it's like incredible. They're just a makeup company and they have this incredibly passionate network of, of people that are actually advocating for like regulatory changes. I mean, there's just like normal, you know, normal people, like sort of a lot of them are, you know, moms and they're, you know, they maybe are um, teachers and this is a side gig or whatever. And they're out there like really trying to create change. Um, so those are a couple of examples, but I mean, on a really like more uh, tangible level, I guess, um, some, some things that I'm really inspired by, there's this company called Rhino Foods and they're a manufacturer of um, cookie dough. So they like sell to Ben and Jerry's and like, you know, things like that. They're like the like little cookie dough balls that you find in ice cream, things, things along those lines. Yeah, you had me at cookie dough. Uh, I know, right, yeah. exactly. Everybody loves the story about cookie dough. Who, who, who could turn that away? Um, but what makes them really cool is that they actually... Um, they're, I think, in, in upstate New York, and um, this was all born out of the fact that they were just having trouble finding people to hire in their factory. They're like, you know, not not in the, they're not in the prime location, and so they were having trouble hiring people and getting them to stay, and they recognized that one of the reasons why they were having trouble was that the folks that worked for them, these are, you know, fairly low-wage jobs. They're, these are not, um, you know, knowledge workers. They're folks working on the factory floor, and they, um, they realized that a lot of their folks would have these expenses that were unplanned, like a car breaks down. And they would have so little savings that they would actually have to, you know, they would essentially have to leave work to go figure out, they wouldn't be able to get to work because they had to go figure out how the heck they're going to fix their car. They're not able to fix it. They're not able to get to work. There wasn't public transportation. So things like this um, are literally keeping them from like, then they don't, they don't have, now they're understaffed because they don't have people that can actually show up to work. So like such a, such a small problem. And they're like, hey, we're just trying to manufacture cookie dough. We just need people to show up and, you know, and, and work. And what can we do to try to solve this problem? And so they realized that there was actually such a simple fix that they worked with a local, um, a local bank, I think it was a local credit union to um, have create these really small scale loans. And so it's basically like a paycheck advance, but through the company. And so they don't, there's like a no interest loan, essentially, they're just getting a forward on their paycheck to be able to cover these type of expenses, whether that was a medical bill or whether that was, you know, getting the car fixed or whatever. Um, and so they call it income advance. And it's this, this program that they created, again, like from a place of like, yes, they care about people, but it was really like, we need to run the company. And what it, what it helped them to realize was that you can do both. Like you can care about people and you can run a company and that can actually like be good on both sides. And so now they've been running this, this program and have seen that um, employee, not only is employee turnover down, but actually employee productivity is way up because now you have people showing up that aren't like so stressed out about that medical bill or their car or whatever that they can actually just focus on work. And so they have now people staying longer, they're more effective, they're more productive. And it's just this beautiful story that they went, oh my gosh, this is this is incredible. We want to share it with other companies. And so they've become this really impact-driven company from like sort of through necessity, but seeing that you know you can you can uh, do good by do do well by doing good at the same time. I love that. And it really shows that context matters. Um, you would think, 
oh, if we're advancing, uh, uh, coming from a, from a CFO's perspective, I think in a vacuum, a CFO would say, yeah, but if we forward paychecks to employees, then we're exposing ourselves to risk um, and we are losing out on interest that could be earned. So there's actually a revenue hit to us in terms of interest that could be earned on money that would otherwise be in our accounts, but now we are, we're, we're uh, paying it out to our employees before payday. So that's a loss. But in reality, it sounds like what they have done has actually led to a net gain because they were losing so much more money by virtue of not having enough workers. And so by expending this little amount in forwarding people their paychecks, what seems like in a vacuum, yeah, why would we do that? We're gonna lose earned interest, actually turns out to be a net benefit for the company in the long run, right? So, so context really matters when it comes to these, these kind of market-based considerations. Exactly. And I think, you know, this gets back to the question you asked that I uh, you know, have, have only sort of answered, but to answer it directly, you know, isn't that expensive? And I think that's exactly what you said is the change in mental model that we need to be able to really understand, is this a cost or is this an investment? And, you know, I, I think employee productivity is one of the, you know, it's, it's kind of the classic one to say, yes, if you make an investment in your employees, it's going to pay off. And it is hard to do those calculations. It's not a straightforward answer. But the beauty of the B Corp community is that there are these examples now. And so now you have Rhino Foods that's like, hey, I want to tell this story. They actually have calculations to tell you what their return on investment is so that other folks can go and do the same thing. And there's some really amazing examples like another company, and I won't go into the whole story, but another company, Grayston Bakery, um, they started the, a, an open hiring program where they said, you know what, we are going to hire anybody that applies for the job as long as they're legally able to work. doesn't matter whether they have a criminal record. It doesn't matter what their background is. We're not going to do dr drug screening and we're going to see how that goes. We're going to try, just give people a chance and see, and see how that goes. And again, getting back to this idea that like, wow, you're giving somebody a chance that probably can't get a job anywhere else. The amount of uh, commitment that they're going to have to that job is you know, gonna far exceed somebody that can otherwise just go get a job anywhere. And so then the cool thing here is that that Grayson Bakery was doing this. They had all the examples. They had, you know, they figured that there's a lot of stuff you gotta think about, right? You know, that's not something you can just do overnight. Well, they actually inspired the body shop who is also a B Corp. So, you know, the body shop, they've got all those re retail shops with um, really amazing, uh, good smelling natural products. Um, and and they decided, hey, you've already got out, like figured out all the, all the you know, the all of the, get all the kinks out, we can go and do that now too. And so now the body shop has actually started an open, open hiring program and going from, you know, little grace and bakery to the body shop national or international company, um, huge, huge impact. So that's one of the really cool things is like leveraging those success stories. What's the biggest barrier that you run into in reaching new company? Like the number one reason somebody would say no to becoming a B Corp. Is it concern over just cost and the work that goes into it or are there other issues that you run into you know it's amazing uh in this past year we have seen like a 50 percent increase in companies coming and using our assessment and applying for certification and that is in code like through covid we're, you know, we're recording this right now, you know, hopefully uh, at the tail end of the pandemic. And so we're talking about the last, um, you know, the last 12, 18 months, we've seen this uptick. And so to your question, like, is it cost? 
it's not cost. Cost is definitely not the number one because, you know, we're seeing in this economic environment where so many companies have been really struggling and trying to figure out how they're going to keep their doors open. They're still prioritizing B Corp certification. And the reason is because they can see this is where the world's heading. And so this is a, it is a market advantage. They're saying, this is where my employees are heading. This is where consumers are heading. This is just as humans, we see the impacts of climate. We're seeing, you know, the impacts of inequality. We've had this, you know, racial reawakening here in the U.S. And, and people are going, this stuff isn't going away. I got to get ahead of it. This is my chance to get ahead of it. But to the question of what the biggest barrier is, I think time is the biggest barrier. It's not dollars, it's time. Because it is an investment to figure out what are all, you know, all of the places where I have leverage to be able to make an impact. And then I need to not only go out and do those things, but I need to document them so that I can prove that this isn't just something I'm talking about or something I did yesterday, but I'm not committed to doing tomorrow. You actually have to go through and, you know, and document these things and, and, you know, and frankly, fill out, you know, fill out an assessment and have a, you know, have a third party go through and, and work with you to validate it. And that all takes time. So I think that's the biggest thing. It's not money, it's probably time. Who tend to be your counterpoints? Who are you working with within an organization? Like if somebody, if a company wants to take this on, who becomes responsible for it? I mean, I'm sure it's different from one industry to the next, but by and large, like where does that responsibility fall within a corporate hierarchy? Yeah. So I'd say if you're a kind of small to mid-sized company, it's going to be typically like a COO or, you know, a head of operations or something like that. Uh, if you're a big company, it's going to be your sustainability team, your corporate social responsibility team. Um, so it, it varies a lot. But even those people that are, you know, kind of playing that project manager role, um, they're going to need their counterparts within the organization. So if you have more than, say, 50 employees, you're going to need to be working with your CFO, with your HR manager, you know, with your operations person. You really, because this, this stuff really does kind of cover the whole scope of the business. I think oftentimes one of the misconceptions people have is this is just about environmental impact. So like we're just, that's all we're talking about is, you know, carbon, you know, maybe reusable materials, things like that. But really, it's really the whole company. We want to know, do you have something about uh, your purpose being, you know, more than just profits in your mission statement? Does it show up in your employee manual? You know, we, we so it's really looking at kind of the whole 360 of the business, which again, getting back to time can be a barrier, but it's also an incredible opportunity because here's the way that you can make this stuff practical. So if you're the, like, if you're passionate about, um, you know, sustainability, social responsibility, using business for good, and you're like the one, you're, you're that zealot in your organization, and you're trying to explain to everybody, like, what does this actually mean? You know, again, it can feel really sort of academic, or it can feel like maybe you're just like the, the hippie over there by yourself. This is the way to make it super practical, you know, talking to your HR manager, like, here is, uh, here are the really practical things we can look at in our benefits, talking to, you know, everybody in your organization, and you can break it down to the really small details so that they know on their day to day, this is how I can do my job better. This is how I can actually be part of giving back. And so when you get to the end of it, you've got this like really culture that you've shifted within the organization because now people really get it. They can wrap their hands around it. mentioned something earlier about shareholder profit, which is absolutely something I want to talk about. I've noticed um, that there's a, a big distinction drawn when it comes to B Corps. There's a big distinction drawn between 
shareholders and stakeholders. And I want you to break that down for me. Yep. So this language, I think, is if you went to business school, you probably know what we're talking about. And, and if you didn't, you probably don't, because this is like language that, you know, when it comes to who's a shareholder, well, there's only five of us at my company. Like, what are you talking about? I just, you know, I, ru I run the place. Um, essentially, if that's the case, you know, you are the shareholder. You're, you're the one that invested your, you know, your money, even if it was your pocket change and you're running it out of your garage, those are your resources. So that is essentially you have share the share of your company. You own it. When we get to big companies, what shareholder shareholders mean are actually the investors. So in your retirement fund, you are probably invested in a whole bunch of companies through a mutual fund. So at the end of the day, most of us that have retirement savings are shareholders. We're shareholders of, of these big companies, these big companies that are publicly traded on the stock, stock market. And so when we talk about this idea of like shifting from a mentality that it's just about shareholders, so the people that own the stocks in your company, so either that, that is like the people that just own the company because they started the company or it's people that have invested in the company. So that's what it means to be a shareholder, but it's essentially, it's about the money. When we're talking about shareholders, we're talking about the people that have the money. And, you know, at the end of the day, like there's nothing wrong with being a shareholder. We, again, we're, most of us are invested in, in the stock market via mutual funds that we hold in our, you know, in our 401k and our IRAs. And that's not a bad thing by any means, but what has happened is over time, as you know, again, going back to kind of thinking about how corporate law has shifted, it has what has happened is that companies are only focused on making money. And so then you have the biggest shareholders that show up at your annual shareholder meeting. And these are not you and me. These are either the folks that are actually managing the funds. So those that actually represent like the day-to-day -day folks that own shares and their mutual funds, or they're the investors that, you know, that own a big chunk of, of the company because they're a strategic investor. So these are the people essentially with the power. And those are the folks that have advocated for a long, long time that they, that they should essentially be getting all the benefits, that, that this is all about, you know, putting dollars in their pocket. And so the challenge is that even though we're all individual shareholders, we actually, the folks that represent us are often not advocating for our own uh, best interest because they're not really thinking about the needs of individual people. What they're really trying to do is maximize the value of, of their shares so that they can get paid more as a manager of this fund so that the people that sell us our mutual funds will buy more of their shares. It just all comes back to this idea that it's all about money. It's all about maximizing profit. So when we talk about shareholder to stakeholder, what we're talking about is going from a profit maximizing mindset where that's all that matters at the, at the expense of people, at the expense of the planet, you know, externalize everything and, and more money in the pocket. And, you know, the future generations can deal with the consequences later. We're shifting that mindset to say, yes, we need to make money. Like there is no two ways about that. These are profitable companies. We need to be able to make money and we also need to be able to protect the environment, put, you know, put, put people first, be able to think about the people that, um, that are employed at these companies, you know, be able to think about the, the good of, you know, this greater, um, the, the sort of greater sense of people that are investing in the company and not just those that have the power that are there voting at the shareholder meeting, right? Like it should be about all of us.
It should be about the bigger picture. So that's when we talk about shifting from shareholder to stakeholder. It's like profit maximizing to maximizing good for people and planet. Give me an example of who might be a stakeholder for any of these, for Tom's shoes. Who might be a stakeholder for Tom's shoes that is not a shareholder? So your stakeholders are people that work for you, people that live in the community where you operate. So, you know, you can think of, let's say you're, you know, you're manufacturing shoes and uh, you operate uh, a manufacturing plant and, you know, people live in that neighborhood next to the, you know, the place that you operate. And you want to be thinking about like simple things. Like if I'm hauling all my trash out and it's all now sitting in, you know, in a big pile in the middle of this neighborhood where people live and, you know, maybe it, maybe it smells bad, maybe it's polluting the environment. Um, those people that, that live around, you know, your plants, those are stakeholders, but so are your employees. And so are the people that are in your supply chain. Like, let's say, you know, you um, are the little tiny company that sells the, the dye for, um, you know, for the tags that go on the shoes. Like, these are the things that uh, you may not be thinking about. You may not be thinking about like, well, what is, what is their life like? What is their livelihood like? These are all people that you can impact through your operations. And so when we talk about what a stakeholder is, it's just, it's just people. It's basically all the people that you impact, your employees, people that you know, live close to what you do, people that are in your supply chain, they're just the humans. Um, and so you know, in a broad sense, like we're all stakeholders, particularly of these big companies um, that, you know, that are impacting our world in, in all of these different ways. If it seems like I'm fixated on this, it's because I think it's kind of an aha moment for a lot of people. When they start to think about stakeholders as people who work for someone further down the supply chain or who are indirectly but crucially tied into this business in one way or another and yet are not shareholders per se. So I, if it seems like I've been fixated on this, it's just because I think it's a really eye-opening realization for a lot of people that the tentacles of or the tendrils of business reach out across a much larger swath of the populace. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that, you know, going back to earlier in our conversation, talking about this idea of kind of that, that awakening that we have, you know, whether we're talking about our biases um, or talking about, you know, how business actually impacts the world. I think a lot of business owners will talk about that awakening that they had, that they realized, oh my gosh, not only do I have the ability to, you know, not have, try to have negative impacts on these people in my supply chain, like, hey, I want to make sure there's no child labor in my supply chain. You know, that's, that's kind of a, an, a, 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 um, an older one that we're more familiar with, you know, going back to, you know, the 80s and Nike and all these things that we've heard about over time, like really gross inequity that happens in um, in other countries that are manufacturing our goods. But if you think about it, the folks that, you know, that were sitting here in the US, they're, they're you know, signing these contracts with these folks overseas, and they, they probably honestly didn't know. And that is, you know, a lot of, yes, do, are there some really terrible, evil people out there in the world that want to exploit children? Sure there are, but it's not the vast majority of business people. The vast majority of business people just didn't realize what they didn't know what they didn't know. And so, you know, when you realize, oh my gosh, not only do I not want to have child labor in my supply chain, but you know what, if I think, gosh, I have the ability to have 
to, to not have a negative impact, maybe I can have a positive impact. Maybe I could actually employ families that, you know, are in, um, you know, in Afghanistan or in India or wherever, and I can actually, they can be making my goods, but I could be supporting their local community and making sure that, you know, their kids can go to school. And when you have these, these moments where you go, oh my gosh, these are people that I'm impacting, I could actually have a positive impact on them. And maybe there's a way to do that and make money. That's, that's, you know, that's pretty exciting. And I think a lot of business people get excited. Like I can bring my humanity into my work. Well, I see you fitting in well in the role that you're in for a lot of reasons, but one of them being that you do have um, an impressive background in business. I think it's easy from the outside to look at, at B-Lab and to look at, you know, B-Corps in general as a, as a progressive movement. Um, but, you know, you've got an MBA, right? And you're someone who really understands business development. You worked before you ever came to B-Lab. You've worked in business development um, for a long time. And you're someone who I think believes in um, a market-based economy and who is not looking to up in the apple cart necessarily. I get the impression that you're just going into these businesses and saying, hey, listen, there's a better way to do this. And in the long run, it's going to be better for everybody. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I definitely, I believe in the power of, of business and of markets. And I think there is so much good that business can do for the world. And the ability to innovate is, you know, it's, it's always what you'll hear business people go back to is, is when you are a small scrappy business or, you know, you, you're pushed, you, there's, you kind of have that, uh, you have that need. Ne necessity drives innovation, right? You have that need to innovate for your livelihood. There's there are really amazing things that can happen, and I think that we we see that you know in all places all over the world, and we see the flip side in places all over the world. We see the impacts, the negative impacts that business has had, the hoarding of wealth in the top one percent, the um, you know the the whether it's the sea plastics to you know to carbon emissions ruining our environment and you know between the wildfires and you know all of the things that we've seen from climate change to um you know to the kind of like smaller day-to-day -day impacts that businesses can have on employees just kind of you know having not a great experience that that impacts their daily quality of life so it's like all of these things we see both sides of it we see the incredible potential for innovation and the incredible damage that business can do and I fully believe that there is a way to leverage all of that positive and the innovation for good. But at the end of the day, we do need to change the rules of the game in order to make it work for us. And so I am, you know, I, I am definitely a work within the system person, but I have, I have for sure come to believe that there's some real changes that need to happen. And, and what I talked about with that legal change that companies make on the individual level, that shouldn't be something you have to work harder for. You should be able to do good as a company. Come on, it's kind of like, you know, when you, when you realize that uh, we have these laws that are standing in the way of, of companies and, and people just being able to do good for the world, it kind of seems crazy. And then, you know, when you really step back and realize it's just part of this whole system that has continued to benefit that top 1%. And so it has not been in their interest to change it. And, you know, and you kind of, that that's how you can start to, that's how you can start to get frustrated with the system. But I think there's an in-between path. I think we can work within the system. We can still have a market-based economy, but we do need to, to, to change the rules so that businesses can actually create good for the world. And there is an arm of B-Lab that, that works pretty heavily to influence policy or to get involved in policy discussions, I guess I should say, right? I mean, that's, that's definitely part of the model. 
Yeah, exactly. And we, um, we've just been part of an incredible coalition that uh, we helped to to, uh, to spearhead that um, is now being considered by the Biden administration to um, have a, uh, a White House initiative for inclusive economic growth. So over 50 organizations joined on with B-Lab to advocate for essentially space to have this conversation to say, you know, there are better ways to do things. Let's put it all on the table and let's figure out some, you know, some real bipartisan solutions. And I think that's one of the really cool things about this work is that it has been bipartisan. You know, we pass laws all over the country to allow companies to elect this kind of a corporate structure. And in nearly every case, they were, uh, they were almost unanimous and totally bipartisan. And it's one of the very few bipartisan things you can find these days that, you know, it gets people, it gets people on board. It's a market-based solution, but it's a way to actually use the market for good. And that's something that, um, you know, both, both parties can agree on. I've had you uh, share some examples with me already. I won't ask you to get into any more case studies, but um, I wonder if you wouldn't rattle off just a few names of some of the bigger, more recognizable companies that are certified B Corps that people may not realize. Like who are yeah. the really flagship B, B Corp organizations? Yeah, so um, the largest B Corp in the world is a company called Danone, and they are the manufacturer of Danon yogurt, Horizon Organic Milk, uh, Silk, the soy milk, and a whole bunch of other um, uh, similar products, dairy and, and dairy alternative products. Um, and they're, they're a B Corp. So they're a large global company. Um, I mentioned uh, The Body Shop, and they're um, part of a, a global um, cosmetics and, uh, and um, kind of natural skincare products company. Um, called Natura, which if you were in Brazil, they're like a household name, um, but they're also another big global company. So they own the body shop, they own Aesop and a couple of other companies and actually Avon as well. Although Avon itself um, is, is still working towards their certification. Um, and let's see, gosh, some of the other ones that I love, I mentioned um, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Um, let's see, Athleta is one of my favorite um, uh, apparel companies. I'm glad to know that the money my wife spends on Athleta, which is copious, <laughs> is going to a good cause. It is. They do a ton to, um, to support and empower young women, um, which, is, which is really wonderful. Um, gosh, and the list just goes on and on. There's, um, you know, there's 4,000 of them now, sure. again, all over the world, every industry, um, you know, really an incredibly diverse group of companies. Kara Peck is Senior Director of Strategy and Partnerships for B-Lab US and Canada, where she works with and for companies uh, like those that we're talking about who are looking to take a more transparent and sort of a holistic approach to business. Um, today, we're talking about all of this and more. I'm going to pivot a little bit and say, what are the stories and the news stories and the things that are going on in the world right now that you're really paying attention to? Yeah, there's a, a really um, exciting and, and maybe surprising, maybe not surprising trend that's happening right now around some of the largest uh, energy companies in the world. So this is definitely a trend to watch. Um, just a few weeks back in May, Exxon, uh, there was a shareholder vote and uh, the shareholders actually going <laughs> speaking of shareholders uh, share, shareholders that have historically um, never voted in favor of any kind of um, environmental group activist shareholders bring these types of um, uh, proposals forward all the time and they always get voted down in this case 
there was a, a group that actually put a proposal forward to put uh, two members of their team, again, this is an activist investor that's focused on climate change, onto the Exxon board. Exxon shareholders actually voted in favor of this. And there are now two members of the Exxon board uh, that, that came from this environmental you know, activist investor group. This is a this is a first. This is a big sea change for what is coming around climate change. Also on on this front, um, kind of a different angle, um, but similar kind of victory um, in the case of Shell, where the um, the Dutch government actually um, uh, is is they they essentially won a case against Shell um, that was also backed by some environmental groups to um, uh, more rapidly reduce their carbon emissions. So of course, these energy companies are you know, the, the biggest uh, contributors um, globally to, uh, to carbon emissions sort of in terms of a specific industry. And, um, and so their ability to more quickly um, reduce carbon emissions will have a huge impact on um, you know, the, the future of our planet, our ability to, um, to survive as a species. So this is a really big deal. It could be a really big deal. We'll have to see what the implications are, but it's definitely a trend um, to watch that, that I feel really heartened by. It can seem overwhelming, I think, from a citizen's perspective. How do I know who to shop with? Um, how do I know which companies are or are not doing good? What kinds of things should people be looking for when it comes to making their own consumer choices? Yeah, absolutely. So be looking for companies that can back up their claims that they're doing something better for the world. So certainly seek out B Corps. You can look for, there's a, um, a logo on the back of products, with a B with a circle around it. Looks a little bit like the gluten-free logo, if you can picture what I'm saying. Um, seek out products that are labeled as a B Corp. Seek out products that are labeled as 1% for the planet. Seek out products that are, you know, certainly certified organic is a great way to start. Look for products and companies that can verify that they are doing better for the world. I think there is absolutely a lot of greenwashing out there, but the more that you can be looking for those seals that are given by third parties, the more that you can trust that the company is actually doing better. And a good place to start is just look for companies that are doing better. There's alternatives for most products. So just think about those, those you know, daily purchases that you make if you're going to buy your laundry detergent. Think about buying seventh generation instead of Tide. You know, you can make those kind of simple switches. Are there bullshit terms that you mentioned greenwashing that get used that are kind of meaningless? And I think as an analogy, I would use something like cage-free hens, right? Well, we've all learned, oh, it sounds great. These, these hens aren't in cages, but we've learned that in a lot of cases, that's a meaningless distinction that they're kept in worse situations than um, hens who would just be in cages. Are there similarly terms that companies have adopted that they throw on products, but that we should as consumers maybe not be fooled by? Yeah, um, for sure. So certainly natural is one of those. Um, if you're not already aware, natural doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Pretty much everything is natural in one way or another. Um, so, you know, be wary of things that say that they're eco-friendly, um, things that say that they're uh, even compostable. So you really need to be looking for a product that um, is I, that is certified in some way because everything eventually, especially the word biodegradable, 
Uh, so a lot of times uh, a product will say that it's biodegradable. Well, everything will biodegrade at some point. And you know, you've, you've probably seen those in this, you know, whatever it is, it's this uh, water bottle will biodegrade. Yeah, it's just gonna take, you know, a thousand years before the, it actually breaks down. So, so be looking out for things that are certified that have, um, you know, a, a, a seal of a certifier on it. So again, like a fair trade, a 1% for the planet, a B Corp. Um, and then also just be looking for specificity. And so if a company says that something is, you know, is biodegradable, really look and understand what, what they mean by that. Can I actually put this in my back in my backyard? And typically um, companies that that where those things are true will be stating it pretty clearly on, on packaging. And if not on the website, I know that could be a lot of work, um, but at the end of the day, you can make like once you look into it, then you can make that choice over and over again and not have to think about it. I'll make sure in the show notes too, to include um, a link to the B, to, uh, to bcorporation.net, which um, is the website where people can find like who are the actual certified B Corps um, and, and they can kind of search there as well. Are we going to get any gains, just inherent gains from generational differences? As more younger people come into power, at these companies, is is it going to be more in, uh, inherent for younger people, or is that just an assumption that older people make? <laughs> no, that's the truth. I mean, it, it is absolutely the truth. I think one of the surprising things is that it's not just young people that you know, as surveying Americans, that the vast majority of them do. Um, when given a choice, choose a company that is more responsible to people and the environment. But it is those numbers are absolutely higher um, for millennials and even higher for the younger generations who you know really um, see the future of the planet as as their responsibility. I mean, at this point, you know it is, and they're seeing that and, and making much more. Um, sort of uh, active choices, um, whether that's their, you know, their job or whether they're driving a car or all of those things. But I, I think what I would say is, yes, that's absolutely true. But if we, if we don't all recognize the, you know, A, the, the role that we play. So as consumers, we, we can, it, it does make a difference. The more that we are shopping with companies that are doing good, the more that we're sending the market in that direction and then others have to follow. And you know those that are in you know, in in positions of power, or even you know when you go to the ballot, you do have the ability to help change the system. And we do have to we have to do that. I mean, we have to be thinking about how we can actually change the rules of the game and not just the way that we play it. Because if you know if the game is always leading to more money in in the pockets of the one percent and destroying the planet, then it sort of doesn't matter how many little um, things that we do. So I would just say remember vote. <laughs> I know it's not voting season right now, but it does matter. It really does matter the politicians that you're putting in office. And if you are part of a company, think about the power that you have to, to shift things from within um, as well, because, you know, we can do a lot as consumers, but um, we got to do a lot with the power that we have uh, is, as uh, business people and as voters as well. How did you come to this path? How did you wind up here? Hmm. <laughs> When I was, uh, I guess, you know, 16, 17, I wrote my college application essay about um, how I thought that we as humans have a responsibility to, um, to be our best selves and to give back to the world. And for some weird reason, I was always a business nerd. And so I saw that I could do that through business. And so I, this is what I wrote my college application essay about 
I have a responsibility to the world to show up and, you know, to give my best. And I think I can do that through business. And I went to, uh, I went to college and um, re realized pretty quickly that while I didn't think that that was much of a novel perspective, um, the people around me in business school uh, did not see things that way. And they were all, you know, how can I find the, the fastest path to just making money and selling stuff? Um, and, and I recognized pretty quickly that um, I, I was going to be in the minority. And, uh, and so I worked for a number of years longer, I worked in the travel business um, for a while, saw a lot of the environmental degradation that, um, that happens with kind of the exploitative type of um, industry you know, travel or otherwise, and, um, and really solidified my, my passion for uh, trying to shift business. Um, you know, I just kind of got sick of the, you know, whether it was like the piles and piles of uh, single sided printed pages that were going in the trash, um, you know, when I worked at a hotel or, um, or whether it was seeing, you know, trash on the beach and um, people uh, making next to nothing, you know, serving um, this luxurious travel industry and all these things just like I couldn't stomach it anymore. And so um, I went back to school, um, got, decided to get an MBA and, and really focus in on um, using business for good. And then from there, I, you know, basically networked with uh, everybody I could find, set up coffee meetings with anyone that would talk to me and, um, and eventually found my way into uh, working for a nonprofit after after grad school, um, natural capitalism solutions. If there's any other sustainability geeks out there, um, the the founder is Hunter Levins, who um, was the author of uh, the book Natural Capitalism, which you know um, many years ago was uh, a um, a really big deal in the um, kind of sustainable business space. So I had an opportunity to um, to work with um, some really leading thinkers, and and was frankly really lucky. But the one thing, the piece of advice I always give to people is that um, I did really focus in on my strengths and um, something I had always done was sales. And so that, you know, transitioned into uh, the more sophisticated word for sales being business development <laughs> and, um, and over time really turned into uh, to strategy work. But um, I'd say, you know, it was, it was a combination of a lot of grit like a lot of just like a day after day after day convincing people to uh, to talk to me when I probably um, had had no business making my way into to meetings. Um, and that was just from persistence uh, and then certainly a lot of luck as well and being surrounded by some really incredible people that I'm super grateful for. I'm glad you mentioned that book. I was going to ask if you have any other uh, recommendations of things people should read or videos they should seek out or anything else that you would say, hey, whether it's relevant to this conversation or uh, you just, uh, you know, binge watched Mad Men for the first time and you really want to tell the world about it. <laughs> um, yeah. So the most on topic uh, book is a book called Better Business um, by Chris Marquis. And that's all about the B Corp movement. Um, we'll give you tons more case studies and examples of how these companies are changing the world. Um, you know, I listen to a lot of Brene Brown, which might seem um, a, a, a little cliche, um, but Brene Brown has some amazing guests on her podcast, Unlocking Us. And I think that the same skills that are necessary to just be a good human are the skills that are necessary to really be a, a new kind of leader and be successful in you know, this kind of transformed economy that, you know, B Corps are, are working towards. And so 
um, finding ways to um, to really just kind of expand your own mind and your own heart and and being more empathetic and um, and uh, and all those things that Brene Brown talks about. I think is a huge part of business actually. Excellent. I could talk to you all day long, but I have kept you for uh, almost an hour at this point. Why don't we just do this again another time? We'll consider this maybe part one, and then uh, well, maybe I'll have you back at some point uh, if you're willing to be subjected to my to my questions again, and we can pick up where we left off. Because we didn't, there's a whole, I got pages and pages of stuff we haven't even gotten to yet. But if we keep going, we're going to be here all day. We can both talk forever, Dom. Oh so my yeah. Gosh. And I didn't even get to talk about your, your, your background as a dancer. I mean, you know, you could have been a, a world famous ballroom dancer and here you are, uh, you know, leading the charge for uh, using business for good. So we didn't get to that. We'll table that. I'll tease listeners with Kara is a world-class uh, dancer and we'll just get to that next time. <laughs> All right, deal. We'll keep people on the edge of their seat. Thanks. You're the best. <laughs> Thank you. Big thanks to Kara Peck for joining us today and sharing her insights. All of those recommendations she shared towards the end and a lot of links to many of the other things that we covered can be found at today's show notes at charliekeaton.com. Something to look forward to is a production of Brubaker Creative. I'm your host, Charlie Keaton. Thanks for listening. More soon. Much love.